Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Genesis chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles or your phones, I think it's going to be on the screens as well. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground... All the wild animals and all the birds, birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but there still was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took one took out of out of out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. We are in our, a series we've been talking through idols, things that grab our hearts. Uh, we've been using a few definitions of idols. Steve Cuss says that an idol is anything other than Jesus that we need to feel settled. Anything other than Jesus that we need to feel okay. Tim Keller says, idols are just good things made ultimate things. When we've taken something that's good, a gift from God, but we've made it into a God itself. Augustine talks about disordered love. Sin and idolatry is just disordered loves. Not so much that we love the wrong things, but the right things in the wrong order. We are aiming creatures as humans. And what we aim at, we walk towards. What we center our lives around and what we walk towards determines what we become. And so this is a really important series because we walk towards all sorts of different things. We've got different pulls coming at us from every direction, forming us into one form or the other. An idol is what we worship, and what we worship forms us. Andy Crouch says, Idols at first give you everything and demand nothing, but in the end demand everything and give you nothing. So this morning, I, I wrestled back and forth about this particular idol, because I felt like we didn't have enough time. I felt like I was a bit above my pay grade to do it justice and to do it with nuance. But I want to look at the idol of sex and sexuality. And uh, I, I was very tempted to back away from this one because it's just such a kind of cultural hot button. But um, I hope you will give me grace this morning as we take this. I will not be able to give nuance and teaching to every aspect of what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, and... Uh, but I feel it is the right thing. 
I feel it's a right thing because sex and sexuality, it's a huge thing in our culture and it's a huge thing in our church and it's a huge thing in our personal lives. It touches some of the deepest parts of us. And I also just want to recognize that I am married and I'm a male and I'm 33 years old and I'm white and so I come from that perspective as well. Are you ready to go there with me? Are you, are you up for it? So our culture and sex... Um, you know, there has been a dramatic shift that's happened over the last 60 years. And um, John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, he gives a bit of a, what he calls a, a cultural biopsy. You just, like, take a slice of, out of culture and just take a look at it, like, under the microscope. Just see it from different angles, not, not judging it, just, like, investigating and see what's going on. And he gives this great sort of cultural biopsy. Uh, he says this, The sexual revolution of the 1960s set into motion a cascade effect. Number one, we see the reversal of the moral consensus around promiscuity. So it separated sex from marriage. It's okay just to sleep around. This worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion, which separated sex from procreation. It wasn't just about making babies anymore which in turn moved on to the legalization of no-fault divorce. So you could get divorced without, a, uh, without, without fault from the other person. You just say, you know, irreconcilable differences, which separated the covenant of marriage and made it into a contract that can be broken, which then turned into Tinder and hookup culture, which separates sex from romance and a way for sex to just get your needs met, to get my needs met. And then it's moved on to the LGBTQI plus revolution, which separated sex from the male-female binary, and the transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex, and the nascent polyamory movement, an attempt to move beyond two-person relationships. All that to say is just to say there's been a lot of change in the last 60 years. And it's really important to think about where these things have come from and what they're doing to us. And I think we have two extremes in our culture towards sex and sexuality. On one hand, sex kind of means nothing, right? It's just like it's, it's porn or it's Tinder or it's hookup or whatever it is. It's just kind of play for grown-ups. And then on the other hand, we have sexuality. Your orientation or your sexual identity kind of means everything. It becomes like who you are, the core of your being. And so it's pretty interesting that we've like separated those two things. Sex means nothing, but sexuality means everything. And both of those hold half-truths, some nuance that has to be held together. They are, there's a bit of a disintegration that needs to bring integration. I think there's a bunch of ways that we idolize sex in our culture. Um, number one is we idolize it in the hookup culture, seeking pleasure, seeking to be known. We read out Genesis chapter 2 just a second ago. And the story goes that, that God says it's not good for man to be alone. And he creates a wife for Adam. And it says that they were naked and unashamed. And in some ways, sex is just our drive to like bring that back again. To be known. To not be alone. To be naked and unashamed. To be known and to know. We idolize it in sexual orientation. And part of this is just seeking to kind of understand ourselves, seeking to have a place to belong. The queer community is so vibrant and thriving because all these people that didn't have, feel like they had a place to belong are welcomed into this like vibrant community. No wonder. 
Um, I don't believe whatsoever, just hear me very clearly, that your orientation is a sin. But anyone, regardless of our sexual orientation or our, you know, whether we're married or not or whatever it is, we can misuse our sexuality in ways that bring harm to us, that become an idol in our own hearts and souls. And the third way I think we idolize sex is within the church, that we make this pedestal of marriage and family as if it's the goal for every single person. You know, you always get the question, you know, when you start dating, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get engaged? And then when you get married, when are you going to have a kid? It just sort of happens, right? It's just sort of like this topic of conversation in church. Um, But I don't think marriage is the goal. Jesus never got married. Paul never got married. Marriage is great, but there is a subtle devaluation of those that are single or widowed or divorced. And I want to make it very clear this morning that for those of you that are single or widowed or divorced, your marital status does not determine your status in our community. You are welcome here. And so anytime any of this stuff, you know, hookup culture or your orientation or marriage gets put on a, on a pedestal that becomes central in our world, things get out of whack because those things are not meant to hold the weight of our worship and our attention, our aim, our focus. Jesus is. So what does Jesus call us to here? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is Paul talking to um, a church plant in Corinth, and Corinth was a, a wild city. Very, very just there was lots of stuff going on in terms of sex and culture and like it was just wildly, wildly progressive. Anyone could do anything. It's actually very similar to the West in a lot of ways. It says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. That's a quote. That's a quote from what people in Corinth would say which sounds eerily similar to everything that we hear online and in culture. I'm allowed to do anything. I'm allowed to do anything. He goes on, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. I'm allowed to do anything. It's kind of the mantra of our culture. But not everything is good for you. Verse 13. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. That is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Isn't that very interesting? The Lord cares about our bodies. The Lord cares about your physicality, not just your soul, not just your heart, not just your spirit. The Lord cares about our bodies. Our bodies are important. What we do with our bodies matter. And God will raise us from the dead, verse 14, by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that our bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. That's that phrase that we read in Genesis chapter 2 earlier. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. 
No other sin, this is really interesting, no other sin it so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. I think the point that Paul's making here is, sin is that, that sex is powerful. It actually does something to us. Sex isn't just something we do, but it actually forms us in a way. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You you do not belong to yourself, for God brought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking, and and, and one of the things he teaches in his kind of seminal sermon and, and message is around adultery, which is in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. And Jesus raises the bar on what adultery is. He says, even if you look lustfully at another person, you have committed adultery. He's raising the bar of what it means to have a sexual ethic. And for Jesus, any sexual activity outside of marriage is adultery. Um, And this is not because God is a prude. God doesn't think sex is icky. He created it. He's not scared of it. But Jesus' high, sex, high view of sex here is not because sex is sinful, but because sex is powerful. Because it does something to us. It is not just play for grown-ups. It, we are integrated human beings. It does something to all of us. Sex is powerful. We know that during sex, oxytocin is released, which is like, they call it the love chemical, the bonding chemical, the same chemical that's released in childbirth. So we know there is like this connection that happens. Sex is more than just play for grown-ups. Tim Keller says, sex is the way I say that I belong wholly to you. To be naked and unashamed in front of another person. Rich Velotis, he's a pastor in New York. And he wrote a book and he talks about the three sexual diets, the three kind of options we have when it comes to sex. How should we approach sex as followers of Jesus? He says the first diet is the fasting diet. This is the one that like the church has typically taken over the last kind of 60 years, I think in reaction to the kind of sexual revolution, is that like sex is bad and icky and we should stick away from it. This is purity culture, which has brought about some pretty harmful teaching, some psychological effects to people we know years later. The first one is the the fasting diet. The, The next one is the one that kind of generally most people take, which is the fast food diet, is that sex, it just doesn't matter that much. I just go and just, you know, it's, it's a quick fix. I'm hungry, so I'll eat. This is kind of our Western culture's view of sex. Sex is just play for grown-ups. We said the third option is the kingdom option, which is that it's like the banquet diet. That sex is powerful and it's designed for the right environments. You don't have a banquet every day. It's a, it's, it's a design for like this, this vision of a wedding or a celebration. And a lot of people think that Christianity is anti-sex. No, it's not anti-sex at all. The Christian view is that sex is good and it's powerful. And therefore, it needs the correct container, the, the, the correct like guidance. Whenever something is powerful, you need to put it in the right spot. And that spot is covenant. Covenant between two people to say, I'm deeply committed to you. This is a great quote from Ronald Rollheiser. He says this, 
Sexuality is a beautiful, good, and extremely powerful sacred energy given to us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity. It is the pulse to find our way back to Eden, where we can be naked and unashamed. And sex is this pulse to go back to the way things were in the Garden of Eden pre-fall, where there was kind of integration, right relationship, where Adam and Eve were known and they knew, where they were naked and unashamed. And I think when sex becomes our core place to find that, like, that identity of being known and loved, we miss, we miss the mark because what we're really doing is we're searching for Eden. And this is what is any sort of idol is like feeling settled, searching to, to find ourselves. And sex is just like any other idol. The antidote, like we've been saying week after week, is the reordering of our loves. Instead of finding our identity or acceptance in a screen or an app or a stranger or an orientation, we find it in Jesus first and foremost. It's in Jesus that we are fully home. It's in Jesus that we are fully known, fully seen, and fully accepted, both naked and unashamed. That is a powerful little connection. There's a story, and this is where I'm going to land, of... In, in John chapter 8, one of my favorite stories in the gospel. And Jesus is hanging out, and the religious leaders come. There's this sort of kerfuffle. A little mob comes, and they're dragging a, a woman naked in front of Jesus. Throw her on the ground. And there she is in front of Jesus, naked and ashamed. People surrounding her. She'd been caught in the act of adultery. She was sleeping with someone who wasn't her husband. Let's not talk about the guy who wasn't there. They left him in the bed but just brought the woman. It was a trap for Jesus. It wasn't about the woman. And they say to Jesus, well, the law of Moses says that if you commit adultery, then, then you need to die. That's, that's the law. And the way that you would die was get rocks thrown at you. And so they're like, Jesus, what are you going to do? This is what the law says, but there's this human being in front of you. And Jesus just so, so well differentiated. Just takes a moment. Doesn't feel the need to respond quickly. He, you know, bends down in the dust and he starts writing. And he says so brilliantly to the Pharisees that are around, you who are without sin, can, you can throw the first stone. And slowly they walk away until it's just Jesus and this woman. Naked and ashamed. And he looks her in the eyes and she looks him in the eyes. And he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says this phrase, so, so brilliant and so beautiful. I don't accuse you either. Now go and sin no more. And suddenly this woman who was naked and ashamed in front of Jesus is now naked and unashamed. She had found her, her Eden, what she'd been looking for, presumably. 
And it's from that place, the commission from Jesus is to go and sin no more. Not that it's okay, but there's something better. And the impulse for all of us is to find Jesus again. And it's in Jesus first and foremost that we can be naked, we can be unashamed, regardless of what our life circumstance is, where we've come from, what we've done, what we haven't done. First and foremost, our idol is not in sexuality or our identity or in what we've done, but in Jesus. So Spirit, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that we are reminded again that you are our Eden. Jesus, it's in you that we can first be fully known and fully loved. Thank you that you see all of us, the messed up parts of us, the ashamed parts of us, but you still love us. And God, I pray right now, God, that you would bring healing and reformation and reintegration to all of us. We know that we're all fallen in our sexuality. We all are tempted in different ways. But we know, first and foremost, the antidote to any idol in our world is to reorder our loves. And so, Jesus, I pray for all of us right now just in this space as we take a moment to reorder our loves. And maybe we're doing this for the first time. Maybe the 800th time or the 8,000th time. Spirit, I thank you that you are consistently at work. God, thank you that you continually offer grace and you invite us forward to live more holy and fully and integrated. Thank you that we are known and we are loved. In your name. Amen.